Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting October 23, 2015, we consider the dark side of the food chain, the amazing amount of product and produce lost or wasted around the globe. Science and ecology writer Amy G. McDermott considered the problem for the fall 2015 food fight issue of World Policy Journal under the headline, Waste Not. We'll also point out other top features in the new fall issue, but first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, Iran's supreme leader has publicly endorsed for the first time the July nuclear agreement between Tehran, the U.S., and five other world powers. That's according to Iran state-run media. But the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei says that he expects all sanctions to be lifted, and said that if they aren't, Iran will back away from the deal. The U.S. has said no sanctions will be lifted until Iran meets its commitments under the agreement. The visit to Moscow by Syrian President Assad is ruffling feathers in Washington. Just more proof administration and congressional officials say that the Kremlin isn't so much interested in fighting the Islamic State as it is propping up the Syrian dictator. Russian President Vladimir Putin told Assad reports say that Moscow wants to assist with a political settlement of the nearly five-year civil war. Analysts here in Washington say that means Assad would almost certainly get a seat at the table and have a bigger say in determining his future. The U.S. has long called on Assad to go. This looks increasingly less likely to happen. Now that the Russians are involved, Assad is also supported by another strong regional player, Iran. And out with the old and in with the new, President Obama seems eager to work with Canada's incoming Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Canada is America's number one trade partner and number one supplier of oil, among other things. Obama has not gotten along very well with outgoing Prime Minister Stephen Harper. The two have disagreed over, among other things, the Keystone oil pipeline. But Obama is likely to have issues with Trudeau as well. The new Canadian leader has signaled his intention to pull out of the U.S.-led bombing campaign against ISIS. The two had a lengthy chat on Tuesday. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. 40% of the food that is grown in this country isn't eaten. That's almost half of the food that is grown is wasted. The average American family spends $2,000 on food that it doesn't eat. $2,000 on food that it doesn't eat. There is waste at the farm, in transit, at supermarkets and restaurants, at homes. It's everywhere. Peter Lehner, executive director of the Natural Resources Defense Council, a New York-based NGO, on a 2013 tally of food lost or tossed throughout the United States. But it's hardly just an American problem. An earlier study by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations found that 32% of food and 24% of all calories produced worldwide are never consumed, as nearly 800 million people suffer from insufficient nutrition. At the top of the lost food chain is North America and Oceania, 
principally Australia and Pacific Islands, with 1,520 food calories per capita foregone daily. That region also has the dubious distinction of most food wasted in processing, distribution, marketing, and by consumers, 77%, versus a record low of only 23% lost in production, handling, and storage. Such production loss constitutes a chart-topping 75% in sub-Saharan Africa, but it can also boast the least waste at the other end of the food chain. Fleshing out the facts and failures behind these statistics in the new Fall 2015 Food Fight issue of World Policy Journal is Amy G. McDermott, founder of the online science magazine Hawkmoth and a contributor to other publications including Natural History Magazine and TED-Ed. Her essay in the WPJ Map Room section is headlined Waste Not, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Amy McDermott, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. You make an interesting parallel between the evolution of the human body's ability to store food energy and human society's evolving ability to store and preserve food itself. Talk about the earliest and most traditional methods of preservation. Well, the earliest people probably would have devised methods that largely relied on their specific environments. So things like freezing, drying, smoking, uh, fermenting, or salting foods probably would have been the earliest approaches to preservation. Um, the Inca, for example, who were centered in what is now Peru, froze and dried domesticated potatoes for extended storage. Um, other groups in the Americas would have relied on maize, smoked fish, acorns, and other things that could be smoked or dried as long-term methods of preservation. One particularly exotic practice developed in Greenland involving seabirds and seals. Yes, um, the, the process of making kiviak um, in Greenland involves fermenting seabirds in the body of a seal, um, which is enjoyed in winter. I don't know that I personally would uh, choose that over something like um, sausage, but, uh, yeah, that is one, one popular preservation method there. We have more modern methods now, of course, but as we've just heard, also massive loss. Talk about the prime problems. First, in the developing world, where there's such weak infrastructure. Right. So in the developing world, the major problem is access. Um, farmers often can't access markets because of limited or poor roads, very long travel times, a lack of refrigeration that would lead to spoilage in transit, and uh, other other problems where they just they can't get where they're trying to go or they can't get there with their food intact. Um, so one example is in Haiti, um, just before the 2010 earthquake, there was a road that um, a road project that was begun from the capital of Port-au-Prince to the coastal city of Jeremy. And um, it's been in the middle of a stop-and-start development project for several years now, but it passes through a region where um, about 15% of Haiti's population lives um, and is subject to flooding. It's full of potholes. It's a pretty dangerous road. Um, and for people who live far from the capital, it would take them about seven hours to get goods along that road to market. Um, but paving the road in places where um, the road has been successfully paved, this, this project has successfully happened, um, cuts that travel time in half. So people aren't losing their goods on the road. They aren't subject to the same uh, input costs of just 
getting to market, and that gives them more of an opportunity to sell their goods, more of an opportunity to actually make a profit and improve their lives uh, and not lose so much food on the way. In the developed world, you mentioned a high rate of product turnover. What is that? Well, I mean, it is in the best interest of supermarkets and other food purveyors to get inventory off the shelves or out of the kitchen to the consumer and get more product onto the shelves. It's, it's an opportunity cost to have something lingering when you're trying to sell food. So um, a lot of times we get food labels, things like sell-by dates, use-by dates, that are not actually federally regulated or federally mandated. Um, they're often actually stamped onto, say, the side of your egg carton by the manufacturer as a way to let the supermarket and the consumer know when product turnover should be happening. Um, but they're often earlier, those stamped dates are often, you know, a week earlier than when the food actually spoils. And so if a consumer is not educated about the difference between these different types of dates and they take a look at their eggs and see that the sell-by date is passed, they might go ahead and toss perfectly good, perfectly good food. And that's one way that we get waste that's driven more by um, the desire to make profit than by an actual food safety issue. I guess that's also true about introducing new products or slightly new products or change products or packaging. Uh, just to have a, a continually new uh, eye-catching thing on the shelves, uh, they, they get rid of food that uh, is perfectly good. Right, and that can also lead to excess packaging. I mean, if you want to talk about the, the winding roads that this can take us down, you know, there's a lot of waste in terms of, uh, you know, plastic, cardboard, slightly new packaging, slightly different products, but also, you know, if those are wasted or the packaging is wasted, you know, it sort of blooms out into plenty of new ways that waste is also created that we fill our landfills. You mentioned uh, uh, poor consumer information. I mean, what about actual consumer education to learn about things? It really, I mean, I don't know. I haven't, it's been a long time since I went to home economics, but I wonder if this is really explained to the average consumer, uh, even growing up. Right. Um, I think that campaigns that are targeting food waste are one way that people are getting educated around this, but it is a real issue that people tend to be unaware of, um, of food as more than fuel or more than just an input for their body. Um, I think, though, that as more local agriculture becomes popular in the West, in the developed world with things like farmer's markets, people are developing a closer relationship to their food and, and kind of figuring out that a lot of the things you see in the middle of the supermarket um, feel kind of far away from food when you're comparing them to what you would find, you know, uh, the produce at a farmer's market, for example. Well, feeling far away is one thing. Uh, giant agribusiness has a, a really harmful effect on the small farmers themselves, small grocers, local economies. Mm-hmm. Well, big business, big agriculture has both good and bad elements. Um, bringing supermarkets and industrial farms into new places does create jobs and open up new markets. So it can be a source of income um, and livelihood in the developing world. 
But it's also environmentally very problematic. It leads to clear cutting, to monocropping, where you just have just have one variety of crop, and that opens it up to being wiped out by disease, um, which can threaten local and indigenous knowledge as there's this homogenization of the way that we consume food and the way that we think about eating. Yeah, I think that's a tough. It's tough. Say more about the cost in water, energy, and fallout from energy production and use in the agriculture cycle. Right. So food, as I said, isn't just food. It's also the sum of all the inputs that we use to grow it. Um, So if you imagine your own garden, you water and tend it all year. You might use special lights or special fertilizers. And at the end of all that, if your tomatoes then spoil or you forget to eat them before they mold or something, you've also wasted all that time and land and fertilizer and soil and water and effort, you know, everything all the way down the chain that you put in to produce them. So when we waste, you know, something like a tomato or a couple eggs, it may not feel like much, but everything used to produce those actually creates quite a big imprint on the sort of larger decentralized scale. One step towards a solution that you you mentioned involves making time for the practices of our grandmothers and great-grandmothers. Which ones and how much will we gain from going back to the future, at least in terms of food? (laughs) Right. So I'm not saying that we go back to the pre-industrialized past, Um, but I am saying that things like keeping a small garden or participating in a community garden effort in your city are good ways to offset the amount of food you buy and potentially waste. Uh, You're less likely, I think, to let a homegrown tomato spoil than when you got at the store. Um, And it also helps you develop a relationship with local farmers, local markets. You know, Grandma probably knew where her food food came from um, a little bit a little bit better than many people do now. Um, And even something as simple as shopping and cooking for yourself will help you develop a closer relationship with the food you buy, learn what you you use, where you're at risk of wasting things. You know, if if you eat out all the time, it's harder to know, you know, what the restaurant is doing than what you personally are doing. Um, And if you wanted to take it a step further, learning to do things like make soup stock out of the leftover bones, leftover vegetable bits, scraps that you've got around, or setting up a composting system so that um, the scraps that you do end up wasting or the things that spoil can go back into the soil and ultimately be used to nourish the next round of things that you might grow um, are also great steps toward reducing your waste footprint. Canning is another thing that grandma probably did that is a lot of fun and a great way that if you buy in bulk, you can save things over winter or if you, say, grow berries or tomatoes in summer um, and you don't necessarily want to give them all away, that you can preserve them uh, in your pantry or in your fridge. Um, One thing I also I didn't mention is that a lot of local farmers markets around the country will have a booth where you can go and drop off your compost. Um, So what I do is I keep all my scraps in a bag in the freezer all week, and then once a week when I go to the farmer's market, I just walk it down with this bag of scraps and drop that off, and then I don't have to worry about composting or um, about the smell or anything like that, and I, I also reduce my waste impact. On a larger scale are anti-waste campaigns like one in Denmark. Tell us about that. 
Right. So in Denmark, there's a campaign called Stop Wasting Food, which is uh, which has gotten a lot of recognition from the UN and, and a lot of media, um, which is a large-scale campaign between the UN, the FAO, and several organizations in Denmark to raise awareness of food waste and to educate the public about this issue. So they have regional events, conferences, they send speakers to conferences around the world, and basically provide educational materials for schools and the public to raise awareness around this issue. So because it's become so popular uh, throughout Denmark, it, it seems that it's touching a lot of Danes. You know, this is something that a lot of people there are becoming aware of in a way that maybe we don't see here in the U.S. Um, having a campaign of that scale uh, here in the U.S. might be one way to start to get kids and, and people coming up in the next generation aware of, of what's happening. And where do we see similar organized efforts? Uh, worldwide, really. Um, some Stop Wasting Food partners include Odd Har- Oz Harvest in Sydney, Australia. And um, if, you're, if you're interested in knowing more about this, you can go to thinkeatsave.org and see a full list of partners uh, to see sort of the worldwide sweep of the um, different organized efforts uh, around reducing food waste. Give that URL again. www.thinkeatsave.org. Aha. Talk about steps needed to cut losses in the food chain of developing nations. So I think that infrastructure development, developing things like roads and ports, and the anti-corruption initiatives to get bureaucracy moving faster and money more directly to the people that would be necessary to get infrastructure infrastructure development happening more smoothly are the biggest needs in developing nations. Um, On the ground, we do need things like refrigerators, silos, bigger storage and transport facilities so that people aren't losing their harvest before they can sell it. But those, those things also support development in a model toward industrialized agriculture and the big supermarket revolution. Um, having you know, more food storage, longer refrigeration, facilitates longer transport times, moving you know, something grown in China all the way to the UK, for example. And I would argue that supplementing the very important need for refrigeration and uh, better storage with better access to local markets through infrastructure, as I said, you know, so that a local farmer can set up a stand or a market closer to home also makes sense. That would reduce transport times, reduce the fuel required to transport goods, and create um, sort of more local nodes in the food system rather than a few distant larger areas where people can access food. In the developed world, to balance the problems of industrialized agriculture, you highlight the benefit of more local food production and marketing, about which we spoke earlier in this series with France's uh, gardener prince, Louis-Albert de Broya. Do you see enough available land and financial incentive to make that viable in the U.S. and elsewhere? Well, I personally don't think it's a question of land because we already produce enough to feed the world. Um, Really, I think it's more a question of access and distribution. So um, 
one way, because a lot of land is locked up for agriculture already and there's competition for available land, is to change what we grow where we already grow food. Um, so taking these large swaths of industrialized agriculture and saying, okay, let's say we have um, a massive cattle farm, for example. If we changed our eating habits around the amount of beef that we ate, we took some of those farms and we converted them to more diversified systems, um, maybe growing a variety of plant-based crops rather than beef, I think that that would be one way to produce more food locally, um, a higher diversity of food, while also reducing some of the big problems that can also be associated with um, meat production like erosion, nitrification of um, water systems and runoff from uh, the waste of these animals that tends to pollute local waterways. I think that that would be one step in the right direction. What do you think it would take in terms of politics, government policy, and NGO or nonprofit support to really get something like that moving on a larger scale? I think first it would take um, more generally a change in the way that we as societies, especially here in the West, think about food. So because food is more than fuel, because it's the end of this very long chain of production and consumption um, that in many ways reflects the values of our society, when I look at this right now, what I see is that right now we politically and socially value the bottom line. Um, but when it comes to food, I think that valuing the bottom line first is actually dangerous because we forget to account for all the inputs like energy, water, and labor that have come before that piece of fruit or vegetable or piece of meat that we've got in our fridge. So applying something like an ecosystem services model, which is popular in conservation biology today, what that means is when we talk about an ecosystem services model in conservation, we talk about accounting for the whole cost of something. So let's say we wanted to cut down a forest and we wanted to put um, a mega mall there. We could say that the potential gain of cutting down the forest is all the profit of the mega mall, and that's true. But historically, what we've failed to account for is what we lose what it costs in the long term when we cut down that forest. So if that forest um, filtered water for our watershed, if that forest um, offset carbon emissions, if that forest uh, generated revenue for us from hiking in summer or recreational activities, you know, all of those potential revenue gains should also be evaluated when you're thinking about, when you're thinking about eliminating something. And I think that that kind of thinking around food, where we say, okay, you know, the cost of the cost of this potato isn't just, you know, what the middleman is selling it for, it's also the total environmental and human cost of producing it and of wasting it. Or um, in the case of a monocrop where you just grow one type of crop, um, in one place in a vast field as a kind of industrial agriculture production, you know, what is the cost of that in the long term in terms of um, opening us up to having that crop wiped out by disease because it's just one type of crop? 
or um, what would be the potential benefit of diversifying those kinds of crops, that kind of broader thinking in the way that we account politically for um, the way we grow food and the bottom line of what makes financial sense in our food systems, I think is the first thing that really needs to change. We need to have a much more inclusive view of food, the way we eat, um, and the whole system. And then I also think that tackling corruption and prioritizing food education at grammar and high school levels so everyone shares a baseline knowledge of this issue um, would also be very important uh, first steps. Amy McDermott, thank you. Thank you. Amy G. McDermott is the founder of the online science magazine Hawkmoth, and a contributor to other publications, including Natural History Magazine and TED-Ed. Her essay in the Map Room section of the new Fall 2015 Food Fight issue of World Policy Journal is headlined, Waste Not. Also featured in the new Fall issue, you'll find a conversation with Ségolène Royal, France's Minister of Ecology, Sustainable Development and Energy, about feeding the world, plus articles on smaller, smarter micro-farming, and on cuisine, controversy, and nationalism. And listen next week when our podcast will look at China's European investment strategy in Italy and beyond, despite Beijing's own formidable financial challenges. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Jaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.